In our text this morning, as you see it there on the screen in Romans 12.1, the ESV translates it thusly. But I prefer the NAS for this verse because it says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is an interlude of sorts for Paul. You know, an interlude is an intervening period of time, a pause in a play. But it's not just a pause in the play where there's no action. There's something happening here in this interlude between uh, Romans 1 through 11 and then Romans 12 through 15. This is an interlude, these first few words. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. That is the interlude that Paul is offering us. I um, uh, last A couple weeks ago, I went to uh, Phoenix to see uh, the Lakers. Now, when the Lakers are really, really horrible right now. And so uh, I was excited to go to the game. It was, we got these great tickets in a, in a box. I was meeting a guy from North Carolina, and it was going to be great. And uh, we got into the, you know, we're hobnobbing with people in the box that we'd never met before. And then the game starts, and quickly, the Lakers were down by like 25. The game was over, right? And so the most exciting moment of the night was actually during halftime. And during halftime, they bring out the guy, and he's going to shoot some baskets, and if he makes these baskets, he's going to win. Well, the guy makes the first three or four baskets. I actually kind of wasn't paying attention very closely until the crowd like, started like, getting all excited about it, and it was like the loudest the crowd had been all night. And um, as they start to get more and more excited, like, I realized this guy's like playing for big-time money. He made the first four shots, and he, got, he already got 25000 just for doing that. And it was like a layup, a free throw, a three-pointer, or two three-pointers. And then he had to make the half-court shot. And if he made the half-court shot, $250,000. Yeah, crazy, right? Um, and he didn't make it. He missed it. But uh, it was like that, that, that interlude was the most exciting part of, of the night. And it was a very important part. And what, as we come into Romans 12, I want you to understand that this first this part of this first part, therefore, right? We asked the question to that, therefore, what's it there for? And here Paul is amplifying. He's amplifying all that he's just talked about before and connecting it to what will come after. And this interlude is super, super important for us, both to understand Romans and what Paul's trying to do in this letter, but also to understand just being a Christian. What does the Christian life look like? How does these ideas of union with Christ and justification impact like sanctification, living and walking this life out? And so here, because of God, Paul is saying, because of God's awesome power, his overarching mercy, the gift of his grace, he chose and elected you, Gentiles, to be his own to cleanse and justify and save you from sin and death. And in response to all of this, you should present your bodies as a living sacrifice, for it is the only sensible and reasonable and appropriate thing to do. And so what came before the therefore in 12.1 is what? Well, God's righteousness, God's wrath, God's judgment, man's depravity and hopelessness under the law, and, and also the provision of God in response to that, those things, the righteousness by faith in Christ. So after, therefore, in verse 1 comes living in Christ, discipleship and sanctification, Romans 12 through 15. And so 
Verse 1, and particularly this phrase of verse 1, in view of God's mercy, therefore, because of God's mercy, we can't forget God's mercy as we enter into the second half or the back half of this book. Paul here at the interlude brings us back to make this appeal. I appeal to you, I beseech you, I beg you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, do. The appeal is to do, and the appeal is to rem- remember mercy. The, that is the, the mercy in view of God's mercy. Paul wants us to keep our eyes on the horizon of God's mercy. So I play golf, and I'm a bit, I'm a bit of a field golf player, which means that every time I go out to play golf, I can have a different swing. Now, John Vogel knows this because he's seen the glory and the shame of this golf swing that I have. But I listened to this book on, on, on my trip to Phoenix, and the author of the book says, you got to stop thinking about all the stuff in your head and just think about the target. Pick a target and only think about the target. Don't think about anything else in your swing. Just look at the target, execute the shot to that target. That's all you think about, right? And this is what Paul has in mind, friends. He wants you and I, as we do anything in the Christian life, to always keep the target of God's mercy in full view. The appeal to us is to do, to offer our bodies, but the appeal is also to us to not lose the target of God's mercy. That is the fixed point in the horizon as we sail through this life. In view of the mercies of God, offer your bodies. Now, I was an English teacher One of the things that I was weird about and liked, and it was really the only thing I liked about Greek and Hebrew class too, by the way, was the diagramming of sentences. Anybody have to diagram sentences? Right? All the CC kids should be raising their hands because that's like a staple of the program of classical education. So, um, you know, what, what, what kind of slant, Sabina, would you put after an action uh, word when you're diagramming a sentence? Is it a straight up and down, or is it like a this? Do you remember? That's not right. <laughs> straight up and down comes right after an action word, right? But after a be verb, right, there sometimes isn't anything, or there's something underneath it, or there's a slant, right? Um, Paul here is getting to us, is giving to us the grammar of the gospel this morning. And so... This is what we're going to look at before we get into the rest of 12. It's a little different today, uh, but stay with me on it. So first, the grammar of the gospel, the first thing Paul wants us to know is the mood of the gospel. We need to learn that the grammar of the gospel has a particular mood. In our languages, uh, and today we speak in the indicative mood and the imperative mood. The indicative mood is saying these things that are true, and the imperative mood is saying these things you need to do. And in the gospel, the structure of the grammar is always the indicative gives rise to the imperative. The indicative means who or what we are, and the imperative means that what we do because of who we are. Now, what came before in Romans chapters 2 through 11, present, they present to us the indicative. 
God's elect were fallen, hopeless people who are now in Christ today solely because of what Christ has done. The indicative in chapters 2 through 11 is who we were and who we are now because of Jesus. And then chapters 12 to 15 address the imperative. That is what the elect are to do in response to this incredible grace and mercy that they've been offered. Again, first comes the indicative, who we are. And then comes the imperative, what we are to do. This is the pattern of Paul's letter in Romans. In fact, it's the pattern of all of Paul's letters. And we're going to come back to this kind of Romans piece in just a second. But it's also the Bible. Right? In fact, let's just take a short look at the workings of the indicative and imperative moods as we go through the Bible. As we do, note how the imperatives are always grounded in the indicative. So you and I were created in God's image. Now this is the indicative. A sovereign, elected act of God. You had no part in it. You, both male and female, are made in God's image. You are his image bearer. He put his mark on you in creating you. You belong to him. You did nothing to make this happen. And from there, the instructions are given to Adam and Eve after they've been created in God's image. Because you are made in God's image, you are to do what? Fill the earth Tend it and work it. You are to eat of every tree of the garden except the tree in the middle of the garden. The imperative follows the indicative of men and women being created in God's image. Well, we know the story. Man falls into sin, is judged, but they are given these mercies right in the aftermath of the fall. A seed will come from the woman and she will crush the serpent's head. God clothes the man and the woman and covers their nakedness. God closes the door to the garden. All of these acts are the indicative acts of God because they are made in God's image and he has mercy on them. They are the activity of God even when humanity is lost and God imposes justice, he still grants mercy. God then makes a promise to Noah. Noah is a recipient of God's mercy, and then God tells him to build an ark. God chooses and makes a promise to Abraham. The indicative of that is that choosing. It's finding this moon worshiper and Ur and pulling him out and blessing him with the promise. And Abraham becomes a recipient of that blessing. That is the indicative mood. And the imperative then to Abraham is, now that you've been blessed, go be a blessing. God gives the law to his people. But even as he gives the law, he says to them, what? I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and the house of slavery. The indicative, followed by, you shall have no other gods before me. The imperative. God's commands and statutes, the law, come grounded in the indicative of who God is and what God has done to Israel. God brings Israel into the land and says, this is your portion that I've given you. Now go fill and tend it and work it. The indicative is then leads to the imperative. God gives the land and then they are to fill and work it. God selects David and makes a promise. Your seed will reign in perpetuity forever. But then he calls them the kings that follow after the seed of David, to never chase after the idols of the nations they live among. 
The indicative of the choosing of David and his seed is followed by the imperative, do not worship the idols of the other nation. God comes in human flesh and dwells among us. The indicative act of God is his, him coming into the world as a baby. The father says to Jesus, in fact, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, modeling that indicative mood. This is who Jesus is. And so Jesus then fulfills the law, doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And then right here in Romans, right? Romans chapter 3, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus is for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This indicative act of God, the righteousness of God given to us through faith. And then in Romans 5, right? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We stand in grace. We rejoice, Paul says, in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, he says, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The indicative leaks out of the pages of Romans 5. This, Paul then goes on and talks about other things, right? Union with Christ is Paul's favorite way of speaking about the Christian identity, being in Christ. The expressions in him, in Christ, in the beloved, are used over 160 times in the New Testament by Paul. It describes our new creation and means that we are part of a new order. We are united to him by the Spirit through faith. For the believer, those who are in him, all fullness is found in Christ. And we enter into all fullness of his resources, wherein we have been given a new identity. And then, in 9 through 11, we read, we just got out of reading about God's sovereign and free election of him engrafting us in as outsiders the engrafting of the Gentiles, and the future salvation of Israel. Indicative after indicative after indicative. This is the mood of the gospel. Every indicative is established by the sovereign decree of God. Sorry. Every indicative is established by the sovereign decree of God, and every imperative is grounded in those preceding indicatives. In fact, every imperative was completed by Jesus Christ. In standing, in his righteousness, by grace, he created the indicative of each and every redeemed person. Don't miss that, right? Jesus fulfills the law. He fulfills every imperative, and by doing so, he creates the indicative mood for all of us. And in giving us his spirit, he continuously works the final imperative in and through us. It's an amazing thing. In seeing how the Bible recounts these indicatives and imperatives, we see how righteousness by faith in Christ replaces righteousness by works. Because of the indicative mood of the gospel, the salvation, righteousness by works can be replaced by righteousness by faith. 
You see, faith in Jesus brings salvation, forgiveness, justification, eternal life, and the imperative of the law, what we are supposed to do perfectly and unfailingly, has been satisfied by a brand new indicative. All things, all things, all things are new. The old has passed away. Christ has satisfied God's imperative for us. Faith, the gift of God, trust in Christ's completion of the prime imperative and brings salvation by grace, the ultimate indicative. So who are you? Who are we? The indicative of the gospel has determined we are loved by God. And what we do, the imperative, is not only grounded in what he did and who he made us to be, but in our ability and inclination to live for him is also totally dependent on what he has done for us. Now, English doesn't always get this right, by the way. In Latin, unlike our Western language, the doing word is put at the end of the sentence. We, however want to put the doing words at the beginning of the sentence. And we do this in not just in our grammar, but also in our life. So we can add Christ's doing on top of our doing to merit God's favor. The opposite, however, is true. And we need to recognize that the grammar of the gospel has the appropriate mood, the indicative what is true and the imperative what you need to do. And that grammar should ooze from us because of, because blank is true, we need to do blank. Because we are loved by God, we need to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. You have to see this and understand the flow of this and not forget this and constantly come back to this because we want to flip-flop that. We want to merit God's favor. We want to earn our justification. And so we flip it. And we think because what we do makes us loved and lovable. Now, you and I learn this from the earliest of ages. I've talked to you about this before, from the moment you as a parent look down on baby and crib, like meriting, favor, attunement, the turning of countenance to child. That act is oftentimes, because of how we live in a world and how this world affects us, is often given on condition. A baby who cries and is fussy and is difficult often gets less attunement than the baby who is compliant and easy. Like it's just what we do. We don't even intend to do it. But we're so formed and shaped by this idea. It is what we do. And that's why we must come back to the indicative always leads to the imperative. This leads to the second thing, the tense of the gospel There is also a tense in the gospel. The present is to be rooted in the past. You need to go backward to what Christ has done. And this is what Paul is doing here in Romans 12 in the first phrase. He is taking us backwards to what Christ has done in order to go forward to what you and I are to do. There is an emphasis of the already and 
and the working out operations of the not yet. My, my seminary professor called this story shapes life. The story of Jesus shapes our story, and that shapes the future of our story. The already of Jesus interacting into our story and our histories determines the not yet of our story. It's because of what Jesus has done in the past, objectively, in reality, in time and space, and what he's done in us subjectively, how he's changed us in time and space, that impacts our future and the way we live it out, the not yet of the story. Story shapes life. Now, the temptation in all of this is to buy into this idea of chronos, right? Chronos is the way our world works with, with regards to time. Because we exist on a timeline, and we can only exist in the present moment of that time and only look forward to the unknown of that time and look back to what's happened on that time. And the temptation for us in our current moment is to live on this chronos time in such a way that we think the progression along this chronos time is the way we are sanctified in this life. What I mean by that is like the progressive nature of living along chronos time is like we're walking on this timeline, and we're, we're going to get better and better and better and better and better. In fact, we don't, our culture would say, we don't want to be on the wrong side of history. And that's very much related to existing on this chronos time. Like somehow, in the future, we're going to achieve something and be on the right side of history and never again on the wrong side of history. But what Paul tells us in Romans and what you know of your own life, that's not true. Like, your life is not this upward progression along the Kronos timeline. In fact, it's something totally different. It's the Kairos of God invading your life along that timeline. God's presence. God's, like, the ability to God to stand outside of time and invade into your time at any time he wants. Like, every moment on this timeline is pregnant with God's presence. Every moment. Every moment has this potential for God to be involved in your life. So even the moments when you're progressing on this timeline and you think, oh, I'm getting holier and holier and holier, I'm starting to get this thing, the grammar of the gospel is kind of getting ground in me, and then all of a sudden you crash and burn in some way. Some sin, something. Or something happens to you, and you, just like the child who forgets God's love, you forget God's love. What happens in those moments? We, we don't go back to point A necessarily. And we don't, like, not progress at all. But because God has invaded this time up, down, and all around, God is using everything, what he says in Romans 8, everything is going to be worked out for your good. And that's what Paul's doing here in chapter 12. As he calls us to do and to act, he's bringing us back to the reality of God's mercy and the tense of the gospel that your present life, your present circumstances, everything that's happened to you right now as you sit in this seat is rooted in the past work of God and it's oriented towards the future Tell us of what God is going to do. We sit there in this tension of what has happened in the past, what's going to happen in the future, And what's happening to me right now? And the tense of the gospel says, God is doing blank in me now because blank has been done in the past on my behalf. He loved me and gave himself for me. Therefore, Christ lives in me. 
The last grammar uh, point of the gospel is the prepositions of the gospel. Do you remember how Paul uses prepositions? In Romans 6, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We have been baptized with Christ, buried with Christ. Because Christ was raised, we too might walk in the same newness of life, with, in, into. These are the prepositions of the gospel. Since we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world, he came as our substitute and our representative. There is a sense in which we now know through faith that we were crucified with Christ. And the past that dominated us has been nailed to the cross. The dominion of sin that reigned over us has been broken in half so that he has died for us and we have been crucified with him. And wonder of wonders, there is this third dimension of our union with Christ, a mutual union in which not only we are said to be in Christ, but Christ the Lord of glory and all the fullness of his role as benefactor comes to dwell in the hearts of every believer. Being in him is not a promise for a carefree life. It is, however, the security that whatever God chooses for my life is completely and directly related to my status of being in Christ. And there's no better place for me to be than in him, regardless of the circumstances. And the circumstances never change my status in Christ. Only when the foundation of being in Christ is seen and embraced as my truest identity can then the imperatives of the gospel be embraced. In other words, there is a direct link between having our understanding of our position in Christ and our proper ability to keep the commands God demands. If we simply present the commands without the in Christ reality, we will only feel the weight of the law of offering our bodies as living sacrifices. And that weight will crush us. So friends, we can't forget the grammar of the gospel. We can't let Satan, the identity thief, to forget, make, allow us to forget who we are and whose we are. In John 6, the disciples, they said to him, what must we do? to be doing the works of God. And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. You see, that very belief, the belief in Jesus the Christ and who he is and what he has done, fixes the indicative. Those who believe and trust in him are in Christ, and union with Christ is our identity. And the imperative which ensues and which is grounded in this great indicative is then what? What is offering your bodies if this is true? If all that I just said to you is truly true, then what should offering our bodies look like? It should be joy. It should be free. It should be this liberation imperative, bathed in the reality 
of the gift of grace and the love of God and the assurance of salvation. And so as we go forward into Romans, this is what I need and hope and want for you to know. It's what I need and hope for myself to know that it is only because of what Jesus has done that we can have such joy in offering our bodies, our very bodies, as living sacrifices to God. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would um, continue to impress this on us. That quite literally, like, that the, the story of the gospel, the indicative mood of your gospel would be blazoned on our chest, sealed. And we take hope and confidence because that's what your spirit promises to do, to seal us in Christ, to seal his word on fleshy hearts that you have recreated. For you have set, you spread your love abroad on our hearts. You've written beloved over our heads. You've emblazoned by the cross that mercy is our story and our song. So I pray, God, that we would live with such wonder and joy that you would call us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to you, holy and pleasing to God. Not because of the act. Like, we could give our bodies to be burned, and it would be nothing without love, but because you have loved us and set your love upon us, we can offer our bodies as living sacrifices because of what you've done. They become holy, blameless, acceptable to you. So animate us, God, by your spirit today and blazon the love of God upon us so that we might be a people who joyfully give of our time, our affections, our attention, our energies to you and your kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.